Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Oh, hello, Guy. How are you? Sorry, I was distracted. <laughs> well, we've got, um, this is a fun one. We, we've got an absolute um, stalwart of sort of British rock guitar today who I have had a connection with for many years because um, he lives just up the road from my mum. Oh, I see. And it's from just up there, yeah. But whenever I see my mum, she goes, oh, Bernie says hello. <laughs> but but Bernie's got a connection with one of our more famous episodes. Everyone seems to love the David Coverdale episode, of course. And, and Absolutely. And, and, and um, yeah, because, yeah, Bernie co-wrote one of the, well, is it the biggest? I mean, one of the absolute, well, it's, it's kind of bigger than Whitesnake, isn't it? Here I go yeah, again. Yeah, and Bernie co-wrote that. But he's, he's part of that whole blues scene that, that really grew out of... You know that. Well, he's the younger brother of that blues scene, wasn't it? Yeah. What's interesting, there it's the generation of bands who came from hearing those guys who heard hearing the blues. Pete, Peter Green play and you know yeah. and and Kossoff, et cetera, et cetera. But he's yeah. he is uh, definitely a legend in his own right, and he has this wonderful guitar that he's going to tell us about called Oh yes. the Beast. <laughs> I've got a feeling we're going to be hearing that again. All right, let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hello, mate. Hi, <laughs> right, Bernie. Look at those smiles. Hello, boys. All right. How are you? Nice, nice bit of marketing there with the books behind you. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I thought you'd never noticed. This. Oh, that. <laughs> how are you? Very well. How are you doing, Bernie? I'm good, mate. I'm good, yeah. My mum said to say hello. Well, I drove past there yesterday. So I think <laughs> that's ironic because I should be talking to you tomorrow. That was good. How do you know his mum? Because Bernie's a Buckingham boy and my mum uh, has lived around, well, sort of lived, half lived there for um, like about nearly 40 years now. Oh, I thought it was like you met at some party with Marianne Faithful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, met, they met, met at the Bag of Nails in 1969. <laughs> <laughs> the Bag of Nails, yeah. Uh, I think we met. Uh, it was uh, a party. It was somebody's party in, in a house, and uh, that's when I first heard about uh, your your partner there. Well, he's a, my son's a musician. Yeah. <laughs> what have you been doing during the, the whole lockdown? Not as busy as you making albums. Oh, yeah, right, right. We're not allowed to talk about that on this programme. Well, okay. That's my other me. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be furious. <laughs> I've been, it's uh, all right, it's all right. I'm on it, it's fine. I've been recording. I've, I've done... A, I've done a, the year before, I recorded... A, just before we ran into each other at Abbey Road, I'd been in the studio uh, recording a load of 
old chess master songs, you know, Sonny Boy. Oh, Harry fantastic. Boy, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. And it went so well with the guys I, I brought in that um, I went back a couple of days later and we did a whole load of Freddie King, Albert King and BB King tunes. All, all the stuff I grew up with, you know, guitar-wise and stuff. And uh, they turned out really good. And all last year, it gave me a chance to finish them off. Get, I was intending to possibly use guest vocalists and stuff, but uh, we won't even go there on the vocalist thing as, uh, you know, working uh, with can, can prove to be difficult sometimes. No, I'm not saying that. Uh, yeah, not, you are. Yeah, you are. And we're, we're, and we, yeah, get it. we get it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yes, I think we do get it. <laughs> and I just wanted to get the guitar thing done and, uh, you know, sort out the songs, and especially the Freddie King stuff, which is just a joy to play, you know. Yeah. They're all, they're all great to play, but Freddie has such you know fun in his playing and stuff like that and i and i saw him i think three or four times when i when i was a kid and uh i saw bb a, a few times but freddie was that magical thing of seeing somebody you know aged i'll be about 18 19 and uh going to see this proper american blues man and there he was you know all six feet of him up on a stage looking like an absolute giant you know how close to you would they get would that be aylesbury or uh, Aylesbury was a gig, but the, the biggest gig around here oh, uh, in those days, uh, a guy was uh, was Dunstable, the, the California ball. Oh. Yeah, that saw everybody there, really. Fleetwood Mac, you know, the, the lot, really. There seems like this sort of window of time when a, a certain British guys went along to see American black guys playing blues yeah. and it changed their life, didn't it? I mean, you're a bit young for that lot, but you're you're still, I mean, actually, we should say uh, happy birthday. You're going to be 70 this week, aren't you? Yeah, this week, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and, but yeah, you're right. Baked you a cake. I don't know. My wife is a... Excellent cake maker. She's Mrs. Village Cake Maker, so uh, I don't think I'll be short of a, a birthday cake. <laughs> anyway, but you're right. I was a bit younger than the other guys. But I mean, who are we talking about? We're talking about Eric and we're talking about Peter Green and Eric Clapp. Eric, you know, he was the one who would say, "Well, I'm what I'm planning is I'm trying to do my uh, my BB King thing." And I say, "Oh, BB King, I must check him out. I wonder who he is." You know that. And it, um, believe me, and, and go, go back a bit, being in Buckingham when you're 17 or 18 <laughs> was not easy. So I would go to Dobell's up in Charing Cross Road and stuff and find these things. And through that, I went backwards, really, because I got a chance to find the, the Robert Johnsons and the, the Big Joe Williams. And so I went further back to find out that from B.B. King who influenced him. And once I got the bug for the blues thing, that 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 was it really, and that stayed with me ever since. But that seems a thing, doesn't it? Because it was you, you know, it's hard for people to believe. It's just how dedicated you had to be. How you know how hard it was to look. You'd hear. I mean, I remember hearing about like James Brown live at the Apollo or something. I've got to hear that, and it was probably a year between me hearing about it and actually getting to hear it. It was impossible. You know, it, I mean, yeah. and that, yeah, that's why I can fully concur with you know. Then you know, hearing the Beatles, you know, when I was twelve, thirteen. But when they say, well, we had the records because of the ships coming in from America. And I can understand that completely, that those guys from that era did have a head start on everybody else because they would have got to hear those those records firsthand. But you had the air bases. You had all those American yeah. air bases. Yeah, I, you, I cut you? my teeth in Upper Haven. Yeah. You'll, you'll know around here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Crouton and Upper Hayford. And that was very influential because uh, you could buy the records on the base or you could oh, see, wow. have access to them, yeah. Is that where you go on before the puppet show? That's no, 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 no. This is when you were the you were the turn of the evening, and you were met by the uh, captain and said, uh, "Your quarters will be over here. You will play from eight till eight thirty, and twenty one thirty. You know, and it was all very much uh, regimental and all, but it was a, a great way of, of cutting your teeth, you know, and and getting away from playing Silence Is Golden every night with my young band. I think I was sixteen. I'd left school and. I used to go on my old scooter to, to get to the gigs. Because, yeah, you left school very early, didn't you? You were encouraged by your French teacher. Uh, yeah, encouraged, yes. That's a good I sense one. a romantic yearning there. Bernard. Well, there was. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> retrospect story. I mean, when I think about it, now, what she was, was, a, was like a, she was a muse, really. I mean, she was into Dylan and she said to me, oh, you know, she saw me playing in a pub one night in Buckingham and... Uh, I went to school on the Monday and she said, I saw you playing last night. And I thought she was going to give me a rollicking. And she said, you're absolutely wonderful. I mean, I wasn't, but <laughs> in the context, I was doing stuff. And she was only, even though she was the teacher, she was only a little, not that much, you know, five years older. 
but she was still younger than the guys I was playing with in that band. Being a, and I kept saying, oh, right. can we do this thing by this guy, Jimi Hendrix? And can we do that? And they say, no, 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 we've got to do Dave Clark five stuff. And so she sort of pulled me out and said, you play really well. What are you into? And I said, oh, I, I like Eric Clapton because I had Yardbirds album. And then it was her who basically said, well, he's a blues man. And have you heard of Bob Dylan? And I said, not really. I don't listen to people who play acoustic guitar, really. Quite right. And she said, oh, I think I better enlighten you. So there you go. She was a bit of a muse. I, I just want to focus because actually, you know, it's it's not something that I've really looked at in music, you know, and, and that is the beginning of all this obsession with the blues as far as the Brits were concerned, who then ironically went and sold it back to America and made the most money out of it. So, you know, hooking on to really interesting black players. You guys weren't into the songs, were you? It was all about the playing. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. You've got it. You nailed it really. It was that expertise on the guitar and the piano players uh, the rhythm sections that 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 came right later when people started saying, "You realise what these, this drummer and bass player are doing? You you couldn't do this, you know, with a straight go." You say to her, "Well, can't you play like this guy?" And then Willie Smith be playing with Muddy Waters, and some poor guy from you know age seventeen who's just playing a kit for a year, he couldn't double shuffle. And you say, "Well, why can't you do that? I can do this." And they were doing it very badly, but at least it sounded somewhat like what, you know what the guitar parts were doing. But they, you're totally right. It, it was the guitar that just grabbed everybody. And Mick Taylor was one of those guys, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to your beginning then, Bernie, that first guitar. Do, do you remember what, what happened in your life to make you have a guitar? And uh, what did your parents think? My cousin uh, lived in Liverpool during uh, Merseybeat. And he used to visit me down here. And I wanted to impress him that I could play something by the Searchers or Jerry and the Pacemakers or Love Me Do or whatever. And he was he was in a band which was knocking me knocking me out anyway. I thought that was marvelous that he could play the harmonica, and I could see that he was like sort of unimpressed, but like wondering how I'd learn to play. And he took away my Searchers record and he gave me a Howling Wolf EP, and he said, "If you can play that, learn this." So I'll be forever grateful to him for, for that. From there, from there, I got another. The next time he came down, I think he gave me a Chuck Berry EP. There were always EPs, and then, and then I got I got to, I graduated to buying those blues albums on chess, you know, pie R and B and stuff. It's funny because you think of EPs as a real pop thing. Yeah, and, no, and yet, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and nice little laminated sleeves, stuff like that. I'm, I, you know, I'm a big vinyl addict anyway, as, as you know. But uh, vinyl and guitars, that gets me by really. But, but it's funny because EPs. Sorry, I, not, not to go off subject a bit, but EPs have actually now become a thing again because they're not EP. Because now no one actually releases anything. Any like my, you know, because my son's in a band and he puts yeah. out EPs yeah. because it's like you might as well because yeah. it's there's no length. I mean, you can put out a sort of you know twenty album set or one song. So. So, so they're called EPs again. It's really funny. They're back. Funny extended plays. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Four tracks. Was it two tracks aside? They used to be. That yeah. was good value because you couldn't really afford the albums. But who bought you the guitar? Were your parents? Did you, where'd you get this? My cousin had a guitar and I played it one afternoon and I just liked the feel of it. Something felt right. You'll, you'll know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. you, know, you put your hands around this thing and you thought, oh, I can't do anything with it, but it feels great. I, I really like the, you know, the mm -hmm. coordination thing. Was there a mirror involved? No, no. <laughs> I think I've gone through the tennis racket stage as oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, doing my shadows walk after school and stuff like that and trying to, failing miserably. And uh, I think I played the um, theme tune or tried to, to Zed Cars or Coronation Street, and both of my parents' eyes widened up and went, oh. And the moment they said, oh, you're quite, you know, you're good. And I went, can I have an electric guitar? So that's when my dad, my dear old dad, bless him, uh, stepped in and I put together my pocket money and my paper round money and stuff. And uh, he put the rest in. And I got my first Hofner from Selma's in uh, wow. Chapel Road. Yeah. What yeah. was it? A Hofner what? A uh, Hofner Colorama. And it was, that's really, a, but that's got that's a proper guitar, isn't it? Well, it was, so the time with. it was a proper guitar because, yeah. you, I mean, a Fender or a Gibson was was just you know out of everybody's uh, range. Yeah. You know, Wings Wings did Crossroads. Yes, did they? Yes. You you actually almost played in Wings. Yeah, you're almost in. Yes, that could have been a that would have been a real sliding doors moment. I know. It? No, no, we can we can put this one uh, uh, clear this one up. It's, it's all in the book as as, yeah. as you know. What, uh, what, what book, Bernie? You're not here to promote. Sorry, the one that you, you might have mentioned at the beginning. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I got a. I was in Pace Ashton Lord working with 
the, the great John Lord and, and Ian Pace. Oh, oh yes. And the, the madman that was Tony Ashton. And uh, that was really something. They're one of the best musical things I've ever done in my career. I know we're jumping forward a bit, but it was... Very collectible so- album, wasn't it? Madison yeah, it was a really good record. I mean, and, and very collectible, yeah. Uh, we had a four-piece horn section, two girl singers, was led by Howie Casey. Right. Howie was Paul, Paul McCartney's Man in Wings. And during that period, uh, Jimmy McCulloch, who was a mate of mine. Great player. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, the most fiery, tiniest Scotsman. He, 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 I saw him in the speakeasy. Now I'm, I'm you know, showing my age now. And uh, he put his hands on, he, he leant up to put his hands on my shoulders. And he said, I hear you're up for the gig with McCartney. And I said, well, maybe. Because how he put me up for it, because they wanted, Paul didn't want, want to go through a load of hundreds of auditions again. So Howie said, I think we might have the guy, you know. So I went to the office and I met his manager, Paul's manager, and it was really good. I thought I got all excited about it. And a week went by and then another week went by. Give us a call. Paul's away, he's in America. Give us a call. Another week went by. And I thought, and by this time, pay session and order, my uh, in- income had stopped. So I'm in London in the mid 70s, you know, with no money coming in at all. You know, thinking one minute I've got this gig with the Deep Purple guys and I might be going to this other guy, but in between I have nothing. <laughs> and uh, I went to see him once more. And I said, can t- you know, you can tell me if it's not happening, just say so. I can handle it. Oh, no, he said, he's coming back soon. He does want to get together with you just to have a play to see that it'll work out. Anyway, I went to see Frankie Miller. He said, uh, well, come and see me at the, at, at the Rainbow, which was great in itself. And I bumped into Coverdale in the foyer. Literally- Hello, darling. <laughs> Mazda, what are you doing? Bernard! What are you doing? <laughs> uh, met, Bernard. We're, we're, yeah, Bernard. <laughs> Bernard, yeah. No, he never did call me Bernard. No, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he called me B, B sometimes, B, and Marsden usually. Darling. Ma- I can say Marsden. My dear boy. I know. John Lord was the dear boy fella. Yeah, John was very good. Yeah, and uh, he Sorry. said, I'm, I'm, what are you doing? I said, he said, I, I hear, well, we cut, cut to the chase. He said, I hear you, you You might be going with Macca. And I said, well, that was a few weeks ago, and it's not looking. He said, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm here to put a band together. And, you know, would you fancy coming down? He said, but I can't, he said, I can't match his offer. And I said, yes, you can, because there is no offer. So I went to... The- that was your first mistake. <laughs> I went to the uh, auditions the next day for what was turned out to be Whitesnake and because he was auditioning drummers and bass players. And because I'd played with Ian Pace for a year and with Cozy Powell, he wanted my opinion on the drummers. So these so a lot of very dodgy dod- bass players and drummers came through that morning. It was me and Mickey Moody there. And David was there. We started to play, and he wasn't there at first. And so we got a very decent couple of guys, and we were just jamming. And at the end of this jam, he said, uh, he came over to me and said, I had no idea you played like this. I've heard you on the PAL album, where it's all very straight, and it's like a Steely Dan kind of controlled mm-hmm. guitar player. He said, but you're a bit of a rocker. And I said, well, I hope so. And that was it. We started to play the next day, and it came together very quickly. I then had to call up the McCartney office to say, look, thank you for the possibility of a possibility, but I'm putting that <laughs> together with a guy from Deep Purple. And uh, the manager was a guy called Alan Crowd, and uh, he wasn't very happy, really. He sort of said, well, hang on, you've been hanging around for weeks. So, yeah, well, I said, exactly, I've been hanging around for weeks. He said, so you're turning down this chance. I said, well, I'm not I'm turning down the chance to be turned down, really. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the real benefit from that, obviously, is, and we'll get there, but you went on with David and wrote a couple of storming records, some of which I'm sure pays for the vinyl that's sitting behind you <laughs> to this day. And, and, and if you'd gone with Macca, you would never, you would just been a guitar player. Good luck telling Paul McCartney you've got a song. But, but you, did, you, did, you did blow the deal though, Bernie. You could have had the use of David's comfy chair every week or something in, in your contract, you know. I know. I mean, it's, it was just what, I mean, when we, st- honestly, when, when Whitesnake began, I mean, he was so keen. I mean, and he still is, really. He still lives and breathes Whitesnake. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. You, you'll know, Guy, you, you were there. Well, I mean, yeah. And I used to, he used to say to me, I, 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 he'd ring me up, you know, well, he'd, ring, he'd ring me up every day and uh, say, good morning, good morning, uh, any songs coming? And I say, yes, okay. <laughs> any songs coming? <laughs> he was so keen. I mean, the first Whitesnake album is like direction nil, energy 100. You know, and we went into this stuff and started to play. But, you know, he was so keen. He said to me, 
you know, when you go and play snooker and you like your motor racing and stuff, he said, you've got an out and you like your football and I ain't got nothing. He said, I don't have anything. I just have white snake. And I said, yeah, I know you could do with something else really. He's always been like that. And I, I take my hat off to him really. Yeah. But it, I mean, but it's, it's that thing of being of which I guess you kind of have as well, which is that thing of being a real rocker, but with a pop sensibility. You know, well, he used to slag me off for that. He used to have a right go at me when I started saying, "Oh, have you heard that? There's this great band called Toto coming out of America," and he'd go, "Oh, pop shit." Right. I w- I wouldn't scrape it off my shoes, frankly, Marsden. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying he hated the people, but he would say to me, you know, because he was a, you know, a, a, I think what bugged him sometimes, and I didn't know much about Deep Purple, which is how I got the gig with Pace Ashton Lord, really because I was totally unsuitable for anything to do with Deep Purple, because mainly being the fact that the only thing I knew was the riff to smoke on the water, which every guitar <laughs> shop person in the world knows. And I didn't know that correctly either. I said to John Lord, he said, do you know any Deep Purple? And I said, uh, I know Dance on the Water. And he, <laughs> and he looked at me and said, I think you mean smoke on the water. <laughs> and that was, and he just laughed his head off. And I realized I got, I got, that got me the gig, really. But why didn't you know that? What world were you living in? No, the secret, the, the thing, the, no, no, the secret is it's two strings, isn't it? The secret, the secret of smoke on the water is you yeah. only play two strings. Yeah, yeah. You play, play the chords. That's where everyone gets it wrong. I said to it's Ian, actually the organ that's really just doing the, fifth, the riff. Just the fifth. Yes, just, yeah. Because it's in G. In G, yeah. Uh, sitting on buses in America with, with, with John and Ian, and I'd say, oh, I listened to um, Made in Europe or Come Taste the Band or something. <laughs> and I'd say, I'd say, they're really quite good. And, you, and they'd look at me like a... You, have you ever heard anything? And I go, yeah. Yeah, I, I used to listen to Steely Dan, Frank Zappa, BB Freddie King, and maybe a few others, you know. And Swing Out Sister. I love that record. I played I, on that. Did you? Swing Out Sister. That, one of my favourites. Yeah, I played bass on that. Oh, it's God, a synth for me doubling it. Yeah. I am not worthy. <laughs> oh, don't, don't encourage him, Bernie. There's not a show that goes by where he hasn't you know, <laughs> the track played on. I should have realised that, should I? should have realised yeah. that. And then I'll go on and mention, of course, that I saw the Sex Pistols and fill up the house. And then it's handbags what, at dawn. I, I kind of want to know what, what made the man, though, who didn't know Smoke on the Water. You know, so you're not... I know you said Steely Dan, et cetera, there, but when you when you got your first buzz and wanted to become a musician, you know, it's all about being the guitar player, isn't it? And so you're not really that kid who wants to write songs like the Beatles at that point. It, 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 you're starting out in this kind of semi, that world in, in England in the, in, in the late 60s, early 70s, was was about it was split up wasn't it there was the pop world over here and then there was the sort of players over here and there was the heavy blues scene that was going on rory gallagher was was part of that scene as well gary moore obviously and 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 that's that's where you wanted to be was it what was skinny cat about your first band is that what it was about that's absolutely the perfect place to to ask because 1970 skinny cat was my local band around here and we played all the places around here, travelled as far away as Northampton and Bedford and went into like places that held maybe 100 people, 150. And I was becoming, you know, quite quite a, a name locally, you know. It's a great name, by the way, Skinny Cat. Right. Yeah. Good name, good name. <laughs> and, um, but I realised very quickly that the big fish in the small pond was, was, wasn't going to make it. And then I was so blinkered, i.e., I mean, the Deep Purple thing has nothing to do with the music. I didn't, I didn't listen to Deep Purple because I saw Ian Gillisman and he had red velvet trousers on or something. And that was enough to put me off because I was a, a Peter Green, you know, died in, in, in a wall, you know, T-shirt and a right. T-shirt man. So it's the Beano album as well, isn't it? It's, it's John, John Mayles, Blues Breakers, Eric with his Beano magazine. That's what was turning you on. That was, that was the thing. That's what turned everybody around. There was five live Yardbirds, then he quit. And then suddenly somebody would say, but he's with John Mayo now, listen to this. And it was like, oh, OMG, before the uh, the term thing. <laughs> and then you'd hear Hideaway and that lick in the middle and think, well, if ever I could play anything close to that, you know. And then you start thinking about, say, well, so how did he get that sound? That, that came later. It was only the, the pure playability. And then you heard Truth by Jeff Beck. And it was like, oh, my God, is another yeah. one. And then... Captain left, and that was big source of concern to, you know, when you're that age, and I was 16 or 17, 
And they thought, oh, well, now what's going to happen? And then the miracle came along and this hard road came along and this, this guy, Peter Green. And then he left and you thought, oh, no, that's going to happen now. Fleetwood Mac. Oh, great. Thank you very much. Yeah, they're finished. <laughs> <laughs> and Nick Taylor came in and we thought, well, this is endless, this Blues Breakers thing. So by that time, I'd gotten into Rory Gallagher. I'd heard the taste. I'd been to Woburn and seen Jimi Hendrix and I'd seen all these people. Oh, what was that like? What was, that what was, was, what was uh, it like seeing uh, Hendrix? Mind-blowing. Go on, go on, tell us that bit. Yeah, come as a, on. As a sidebar. He came on at um, the Woburn Music Festival, which I think is, somebody will know, but I think it's 68. And I, I didn't have the money to go, and a great friend of mine, an older fellow who had run me around in a car when I was the up-and-coming local guitar player, you know, he realised I didn't have a car, and he was saying, I'll drive you to gigs. And he said, I'm going to see this festival. And it was, I think it was, I don't know, a couple of quid or something, but I didn't have the money. Yeah, the lions are, that way. Did you get into the safari park as well with that? before the safari park and he took me and uh, he he got me a ticket and we stayed in his zodiac and um hendrix came out on the saturday night i couldn't afford the saturday afternoon which was acoustic stuff with the steel ice span i think be, that was 15 shillings i think so we just wandered around the arena in the afternoon but the saturday was sly the Fa- not sly and the family stone gino washington and the ram ah, yeah and they were on, and uh, John Mayer's Blues Breakers were on the Sunday, and Hendrix closed the Saturday night, and he started with Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I remember standing in that arena, in the, about in the middle, probably 150 foot back, maybe a bit more, and I think he blew four martial amps in the first song, and I was just blown away, because I'd never seen so much martial equipment in my life on one stage, because I think they sponsored it, he, Jim sponsored it even at the time, I think, and he just, I remember thinking, oh dear, they've blown, he's blown another one, and I can vividly remember, all he'd done was laugh his head off, as another one was wheeled out, but they did Sergeant Pepper that night, as the first song. So, so that, did they have, have four spare marshals? <laughs> yeah, they were all around the bed, they just kept bringing them out, and he, and he was he was amazing. And I, you know, I wish I could have taken more in because I was, you know, fairly young. And I saw him a couple of times after that uh, when you could get the melody maker and, you know, you'd choose where you went Friday, Saturday or Sunday and say, well, we'll see Hendrix tonight, the cream tomorrow night and the nice on Sunday. And, and, the th- and of course, then gigs were cheaper than albums. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was I, a funny I, thing, wasn't it? It was you, you, you made the toss up of, of I can go and see this huge act at my local poly. Or yeah. buy their album, which is yeah, more right. expensive. Yeah, I think uh, ten shillings or something for to go to the gig, and uh, the, the an album was uh, one pound eighteen or something. <laughs> it was like something like. So, uh, but but your ambition was not to sing, though, was it? No, I I got thrown into singing because when I first joined the band that became Skinny Cat, the guys uh, decided that I would I would be better singing than the guy who was singing, and the people were kind of jettisoned. It started off as about seven or eight piece. And then turned into a, a, a four piece and then a three piece. And they said, who's, I said, who's going to sing? And they said, you. And I just went, oh, all right. But I wasn't very good. And Mike Vernon, bless him, came to see the band. Uh, I went, I sent a demo tape to, to Blue Horizon because of Fleetwood Mac. And he did, he's one of the few guys that made it. And he came to Wellingborough or Kettering, I can't remember which. And he came to see Skinny Cat and he wrote me a nice letter afterwards saying, you have real potential, but the band are not really very, very good. And by that time, I kind of knew that I was going to have to make the move myself. And he said, but you have a really strong voice. And I never, ever thought myself as a singer. But I think it was just because the power of that three-piece with me warbling away, really, making the words up as I went along. The thing with singing is is that you obviously don't think you're a great singer, but did, did you more think... Was it more about wanting to concentrate on the guitar? Yeah. Just be a guitarist? Yes, I wanted, yeah. I wanted, and I never wanted to be, especially even through the bands with, with UFO, I was never interested in the guitar hero thing because you never, it was like almost like that, I'm not worthy thing. I cannot be Eric Clapton, this cream star, or Jimmy Hendrix. These guys were so far out there. You just wanted to play good and do as well as you could. And suddenly you're in a band and people start putting your name on a poster and say featuring. And you go, oh, I'm getting a bit of a following. And so that was all right. And then I got into Wild Turkey purely because of my ability to play the guitar good enough to be in that band, which was a Allman Brothers British version of kind of. There was a real thing, wasn't there, during that whole period of the of the singer and 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 who didn't play and the guitarist next to him. You know, whether it's like Paul Rogers yeah. and and yeah. Soff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that 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 was that that was the scene that you wanted to be part of. To f- it was all about finding a great singer to go with your chops. That was that was it. And free were that's a great example because you know, seeing the four piece 
doing that, but they were all so bloody good individually. And with with Rogers at the front there, you know, still doing it today, bless him. You know, the the greatest of all for me. You know, Joe Cocker. You know, I'm talking English, but whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and people who come on a par with them and. To watch Cossid flight, you know, you and you never really knew what you were going to get. Did you see? Do you see free you guys? Are you, no, 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 no. Unbelievable, you know. Yeah. And nobody could play like that. You know, we when we were at Abbey Road, you know, with, with Joe. Joe asked me, Bonamassa would ask me endless questions. Did you? What was Kossoff like live? You know, because you know he's far too young to have you know seen any any chance. Then we spend more time talking about guitar players like that, and we do about anything else. Before we go to you joining UFO and what happened there, I mean, I sort of take that moment because I'm thinking about guitar players still and Kossoff and Green and the Les Paul, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. These guys are playing the Les Paul. Just, just, just give a brief explanation to our listeners of why the Les Paul, to you especially, is so important. And, and, and a sort of mini history before we get on to the beast. <laughs> <laughs> the beast. Yeah, we will do that. That, that, that might take a whole program, Gary. You know that. Um, Clapton used one. Mike Bloomfield used one in America. Keith Richards. Oh, yeah. Had one of the first with a Bixby, didn't he? He's had a Bixby on it. Yeah, uh, a guitar that That's a I, I owned. I owned that guitar for about twenty minutes. That's another what? story. In a car park, was that? <laughs> no, I did. It, it yeah, a, a drug deal that went horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it was a deal that was great. I paid about four hundred quid for it. Sold it for six. It was a big deal because I already had the beast. Anyway, the Les Paul. Put a bit more now. Yeah, it was <laughs> a bit more. Yeah, and uh, don't tell me about that. And they uh, they said. Gibson Les Paul, or it's a friend of mine, I should never forget, presume they were French, and said, you should get one of those Gibson Les Pauls. <laughs> and I forget that, and, and I can see him saying yes. it to me. And I went, what? Well, that's plural. <laughs> Les Pauls, yeah. But that's he, like a French cigarette, doesn't it? And he talked about it in, I think, Beat Instrumental. I think that was the first, and it was like, oh, you know, and you can get, if you get one of these, you'll get that sound kind of thing. But we all know now that he got it from the Freddie King album, which was a gold top. And he went in, I think, to Selma's in 65 or 4, whatever it was. And the, it recognised the shape of the guitar. So that's the one Freddie King uses. So that's what we'll have after the uh, Telecaster and the 35. Because Gibson had stopped making the Les Paul, hadn't they? They turned yeah. to the HG in 63. Yeah. think, you know, the solid, which we all know from those sort of, you know, you would have seen, I mean, Angus Young, he's the great SG player in the world. If you yeah. can't envisage one, just think yeah. of Angus Young. Tony Iommi. Uh, yeah. but, and my first Les Paul was an SG. That was, it was affordable, even in those days. Because even, even when I got my first Les Paul SG from, uh, from Orange in, in London, even then, they were twice the price in 1970 of an SG. So already they'd started to uh, to, to get, gain some kind of notoriety in sound and legend and also in price. But it was very confusing, bro. What was an SG and what was a Les Paul? And what were there was the kind of... They seem to be interchangeable. Then There's all sorts of confusing... Anyway, yeah, well, for the, me, for, I'm a bass player, whatever. Okay, well, they Gibson <laughs> stopped making them in 60... 1961 really oh, they right. went straight to the sg sg is solid guitar and they put les paul's name on them without his permission so the first year or so of sgs are les paul guitars then they become sg standards and they took his name off because he wasn't part of that deal brilliant thank you for clearing that up brilliant they started making them again in 68 so the old ones then started to become collectible well desirable more than collectible i mean i think as i say in the, in the book you know when i was first buying guitars and that would be in the early 70s this is a 68 by the way bernie it's what oh. i'm showing you now oh that's nice but it the, but whoever bought the guitar in 1968 changed the pickups um, but that's when they reissued the guitar and they reissued it because you guys were making <clears throat> it so popular because of keith making it so popular right yeah yeah and people in America, Bluefield started to use one in America to, to great. And there was an album called Super Session. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he used it in the, the, the Grateful Dead as well. And they just were sounding so good. Peter got one, he told me himself, uh, because of Eric. He went out and got the same thing. And I think Mick Taylor almost was advised to get one the same way. I think John Mayer probably even went out and got it for him or something. I don't know. You'd have to ask Mick. And now they've gone into, I mean, they are legendary guitars and people are very particular about what year. So, I mean, just well, only 59. It seems 59, like. 59 is, is, is... You can't pay less than a quarter of a million for a 59. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
Burn it, something like that. And if someone's played it, if it's got provenance, then even more money. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. So just while we're on this, then let's just jump and talk about you obtaining your one yeah. and the beast, what year it is and, and everything about it. I was playing with Cozy Powell's band and a guy came to the marquee. He stopped and introduced himself. Nice fellow. And he said, uh, would you be interested in a Les Paul? And I had a Les Paul. And uh, he said, no, I've got a, he basically said, no, I've got a really, a real one kind of thing. And I said, what? he said, I've got a 59 in really good condition, he said, and uh, I think it would suit you. Now, this guy was a bit of a guitar stalker in the nicest way. He went round to people he thought should have Les Pauls. <laughs> and, and I was on his list. And he somehow got backstage at the marquee in those days. It wasn't easy. What's his name, Bernie? I'm going to put him was down. It, is this the Les Paul Ferry? No, he got the golden Les Paul collector, really. And he got, I was then, I'd left Cozy's band, we'd finished, and I'd, I was into Wild Turkey. And he came again because I said, oh, I can't afford it, because he wanted 500 quid for it. I said, oh, out of the question, forget it, you know. So that, I just kind of forgot about it. And then he was persist, really persistent, thankfully. And um, he came to the marquee. And during the last number in the encore, he was in the dressing room and he said, use this. It's in tune. Carry on. So I took it out. And then uh, the my my late friend, Mick Dyke, who was the other guitar player in Wild Turkey, suddenly lost him a couple of years ago. I plugged in and started to play this dual guitar thing. And Mick's face was just... A look of wonder and he said how much have you turned your amp up and i said i haven't touched it at all and the guitar was putting out so much more not just volume just sound than the one i was using and he said it was in incredible so afterwards of course they, this guy's just smiling at me and said well what do you think and i said well how can i buy this i don't have the money and i traded him a strat i had at the time and, and owed him the difference uh, for quite a long time, he was a really good guy. Come on, it was it was your soul, wasn't it? It was your soul. That was your Robert Johnson. It was moment, meant wasn't to happen. It? The first session I used it on was uh, was with Cozy's band, and we did uh, a, a very nice ditty with Mickey Most called uh, Na Na Na. Oh, that's that's the first yes. one. Played. Na Na Na, and you have a nice little guitar solo on that as well, don't yes. you? Yes, yeah, that, that's but, the first way we used it. Why is nineteen fifty nine, which is obviously the year I was born, and that's obviously all good vintages come from fifty nine. But why was why is the fifty nine in the Les Paul? And I, I know this isn't we don't do geek too much geekery on this program, but I do think this is fascinating. Okay, yeah. uh, I think I can't speak too much about it because I've only really experienced having a fifty nine. Um, Mick Ralphs used to have lots of guitars. Mick Mick was a bit of a oh, yeah 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 great guitar messer. And he was, he'd say, try this, you know, great from his, from Hereford. Try this one, Burn. Try this one. 58, big neck, big neck. And then small neck, 1960 and all that. So I got this other one. I liked it straight away. I never ever felt it was a, people say, oh, they like baseball bats and all that. I, I, ne I never felt that. And I've got, I'm lucky enough to have a, a 60 as well, which does have the flat neck. And I play that just as, just as easy, really, you know. I, did it just fall over? I just think I heard it. <laughs> It <laughs> wasn't my guitar, was it? No. And um, 59s have just got something about them. But I've played, as I say, I had the Keith Richards one. And even though it was a monetary thing, it didn't sound anything like as good as the Beast. That's, I would have kept it, you know. And, well, would I? I don't know. I mean, making a couple of hundred quid profit on it was a month, more than a month. Yeah, month. in those days, yeah. <laughs> so the... the, the other 59s, and I know that other people will swear by them and say, I don't want anything else, but they do seem to have something special about them. I don't know whether it was the wiring or... It, 
I don't, I don't think any of us would know Gary. That's 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 the truth. But the, the thing with a Les Paul as opposed to a, a Strat, like say for instance the one I have here. Oh, yeah, that's very um, nice. The Gilmore one, yeah. Yes, with uh, with its very nice little inscription on it. It's a kit of parts, right? Isn't it? The thing with, with whereas a Les Paul is a Les Paul. The guitar you get is the guitar you've got. You can change the pickup, but that's about it. But that's the thing with a Fender. You can change literally everything on it, can't you? I think the, I think the Les Paul was such a great build. Solid, the maple cap, they look gorgeous. And in a, a good one today, a, 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 you know, mine's a good top, but you, you, when, when you were at Abbey Road, you, you, you had a few moments with it, didn't you, Gary? And, you know, you hide it under different color lights and the, the flame will, will jump out. Sometimes, a lot of them, the flame is there in, in broad daylight. And how they bothered to cover them up with gold paint for a period of time was, you know, in, in 57, that's a, that's a whole different story. but. There's just something magical about them, and when by the time Eric had plugged his into that Marshall, uh, well, the rest does turn out to be kind of history, really, because everybody tried to do that afterwards. When when Gary and I started out, Gary was obviously a couple of years before me, but like when you first got into rock and roll in in the early seventies, um, it was the Les Paul and the Strat. It was like they they were the two guitars. It was like they were absolutely neck and neck. It's like are you Les Paul or are you Strat. Whereas and then it just became the Strat, didn't it? Again, the Les Paul became viewed as this sort of specialist instrument. Before that, it was a. I mean, the sixties were three three fives and stereos and Stratocasters. Right. Uh, the Les Paul was definitely made once Jeff Beck, Eric. Bloomfield, Peter, Jimmy Page. It was like, hang on, something's going on here. Mm -mm. That was then, well, I better get one. You know, if, if they're if they all using them the same way and getting that sound, you've got to give yourself a chance and get one. And Townsend was late to the game, wasn't he? You got one a bit yeah. late, actually. But yeah. he only used them live. I think, and he used to put Epiphone pickups in them. So, yeah, we're and really he, going now. <laughs> he, he, he used the uh, he used deluxes. I I think he used uh, Wind in the Geek. <laughs> let's go about let's talk about ufo right ufo your yes, UFO yes. Was your first big break i warned you i tried to get off i know get off. <laughs> i mean i actually can remember ufo because they were signed to chrysalis when we were signed to chrysalis yeah yeah i remember there was a gig in athens that they had i think this is after you'd left yeah and uh and the bloke from chrysalis so the a and r guy from chrysalis said oh we're just something's terrible has happened you know they've been playing in athens and their lead singer's gone mad <laughs> was it Peter Mogg? Was it no? What was his name? Phil, was Mogg. Phil Mogg. Phil Mogg. Phil Mogg. Phil Mogg. Yeah. Phil Mogg had gone had gone insane, and I don't know what that meant. I guess he'd smashed up a load of but some. <laughs> is he still with us? Yes, he is. Yeah. Well, I don't want to upset the fella. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> he'll he'll go mad. But tell us a bit about you. Tell us a bit about UFO, Bernie. I got the gig with UFO um, in '72. And it was the culmination of all that skinny cap talk, really. Sooner or later, I was going to go. And I, and I signed with, um, you'll know why, because Chrysalis had them signed for management, record label, and agency. And I thought, that's everything I've ever dreamed of. And I'll also be in a band. But musically, I knew I was going into something about as, I, I may as well join the Nolans, really, for me. You know, even though they 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 consider themselves to be a very, they called themselves a space rock band, like Hawkwind, uh, which yeah. I suppose so, yeah, which meant nothing to me at all. But the gig was being a pro. I thought, well, that was the big thing was to take that step up and be, become, be, having been famous in North Bucks, I started to become quite famous in Northern Europe. And I thought, well, this is a correct move. You know, this is the what I need to do. Only within a few weeks, I realised that I'd made a dreadful mistake because. We just didn't get along. And I, you know, I was of the opinion being a professional musician was like the cover of a Beatles EP. Everybody happy, smiling. No, absolutely. You're joining a gang. The, yeah, you're that, joining that's a always gang. been my, yeah. that's where I've always got it wrong yeah. as well. And it wasn't like that. And there's three Londoners. They well, not even real Londoners, really. And um, I was the country boy and they would call me the farmer boy and stuff like that. Which was all, I just went over my head. I thought, well, I can play a bit, so I don't mind, you know. And I tried to inject a bit of R&B into the set. I, we did uh, Move Over by Janis Joplin. Yeah. And I got him to sing that and it wasn't very good. And I think Chuck, I think I got back in the USA into the set and stuff like that. I wrote a few bits and pieces and tried to get, but the, the four of us just didn't really get along. I got along pretty well with Pete Way. Pete Way, right, yeah. Well, he's a renowned, who, legendary character. It was just nuts, yeah. you know, and he was a legend 
it, it was already, you know, a legend in your own lunchtime, the, the mm. old phrase. Well, he, yeah. he already was a superstar, you know, and in his head. And uh, he, he would say to me. And like, off it. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that as well. And I realised that I went to, uh, from playing locally <laughs> to 100 people. And the first night, I think we were in Frankfurt, you know, 400 people in a place called the Zoom Club which was the equivalent of the marquee. And it was like a different world, you know, and there were no tuners. We're all in now. Yeah. <laughs> there were no, no, no tuners in those. They used to tune to a harmonica, you know, you just, a, a note. and I'd be saying to Pete, can we tune up? Can we tune up? And he'd be going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bern, yeah, yeah. Should I wear the crushed velvet shirt tonight or the, or the pink one or the blue one? And I'd go, oh, well, uh, the blue one's nice. Can we tune up, please? Yeah. Uh, which cowboy boots do you think I should wear? But and I realised that the musical side of it wasn't really that important to him. And then we got on stage and everything was in A, and didn't seem to go much further. And I thought, oh dear, I can't be doing this for much longer. Anyway, it lasted about eight months. But the experience I had has enabled me to be talking to you guys today because, you know, and I have a real go at them in the book for about five, you know, about twenty pages moaning and groaning about it but at the end of it i really you know i realized that without them saying to me join the band you know i wouldn't have gone into wild turkey i mean i might have done something else but who knows that's that great conundrum and if anyone can't remember uh ufo a ufo of my age they had a very famous album sleeve didn't they of two people making aggressive love in a bath yes yeah that was after me We'll have a look at Wild Turkey, because that was kind of a bit proggy here and there, wasn't it, really? Prog! Sorry, sorry that, that's in our contract, Bernie. We have to have the word prog in our podcast. Wild Turkey was, yes, it, the Wild Turkey that formed was more progressive than the Wild Turkey that I joined. It had become more American sort of flavoured, uh, Marshall Tucker band, that kind of mm. vibe about it. Glenn Cornick was a great bass player and a really good fella, really nice fella. So Wild Turkey, we did a lot of double headliners with Cozy's band Bedlam. And Bedlam was a really cool kind of, was going to be the next cream. I remember it now thinking, oh yeah. But they were really good. Cozy was such a powerhouse. Dave Ball on guitar, the late Dave Ball, had been in Procol Harum. Fra uh, Frank Aiello was the singer. And uh, Dave Ball's brother was the bass player. And we did a lot of double head. Chrysalis sent us out together. And in Manchester one night, Cozy had had this hit record, Dance with the Devil. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd made that. and Beside Mr. Drummer Man. Just explain Cozy a bit for a second, Bernie, would you? Because Cozy was this incredible phenomenon of a drummer. I mean, I guess Ginger Baker would have been a big inspiration on him. But he was he was one of the few front men drummers, wasn't he? The only one, really. I mean, he, yeah. he, he didn't take any prisoners, Cozy. Where does he come from? What was his... Where did he... came from um, West Country. was from Sirencester. And um, he'd, he'd played in, Bur but he'd moved professionally to Birmingham in the, in the late 60s. And I think that's where he, he first, and he played with Tim Rose as well, after John Bonham. Then he went to London and got the gig with Jeff Beck, mainly because he looked like him, I always used to say, but uh, he wasn't a bad drummer either. Playing with him in a band was my first realisation of that you've got to be good to be a top pro. He was so good. Mm. And Don Airy was in that band. Clive Shaman was on bass also from the Beck band, who was an right. unbelievable player. And uh, Frank was the singer. And I, I put myself in there and I'm thinking, well, I'm, I must be the new Jeff Beck. Not. But, you know, the marquee, we did the marquee. It was a who's who of people came to that gig. Everybody was there. It was fantastic. And I was so nervous, you know, because I'm looking out, there's Brian May, there's Jeff, there's all these people, Roger Taylor, all dotted around the room, you know, because Cozy was well-liked. And Dance with the Devil had been a big hit. And he said, uh, I'm putting a band together because Bedlam can't cope with my solo success. <laughs> said, oh, really? He says, I'm putting a band together. He said, I'd, I'd like you to play guitar. It's not something you hear from drummers very often, that, is it? <laughs> oh, well, Phil, Phil Collins. <laughs> he was the next one, really, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He had to get out front and sing, though. You didn't want that with Cozy. Yeah. But, you know, he was such a good guy. And he then got me into the Mickey Most world because Mickey then started hiring me to do sessions for him. Oh, and that's pop world. That's real pop world. Though. That was really pop. Yeah. And that's how I ended up doing stuff for him. There was, you know, these hot chocolate things and other, other things. And, and in a way, that's a great... You're following on from the likes of Jimmy Page there, aren't you? Because yeah. did, 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 did Immediate, did they work down at Rack, the label, where Jimmy uh, was recording a lot? Was I, that, think, I, think, I think with pre... That would have been... That was before Rack. That would have been IBC. Yeah. 
Right, yeah. Andy. So, so Mickey Mouse is at Rack Studios in St. John's Wood, and they're making extraordinary pop records. I mean, it's Susie Quattro and... and no, this is before Rack Studios, Gary. Mickey yeah. used to use um, um, Morgan Studios. Morgan, oh, that's it. Yeah. Right. Up in, up it was in Wilsdon. Yeah, that was before he even had Rack. And then he had a mobile at home, which he used to park on his garden, uh, his front garden, basically, up in... Uh, uh, North London, and that's where I did most of the session. I did quite a few things at Morgan as well, but I did. A, he would then transfer the uh, two-inch masters up to uh, the machine in Totteridge, and I would go in and he'd take me up there in his Rolls Royce. I was like, "This is a different world. This is." And uh, he would take me in there and uh, say, "Okay, this one's in G. I think. See what you think." And I'd get all these backing tracks, and ha had no idea what I was playing on. Until afterwards, they would say, oh, that's so-and-so. And it was only years later when I saw uh, dear Patrick Olive, who was the, the bass player in, in Hot Chocolate, and, and he told me, they said, well, you played on those. And I, and I realised then afterwards what I did. One was Heavens on the Back Street. Of, of oh, the wow. Yeah. Did you do... Which is one of the greatest riffs ever. I would remember that, wouldn't I? But I think I'm on that. He thinks I'm on that with the doing the wah-wah stuff underneath the rhythm. Oh, OK. You know, because I was into I was into all that like you know funky stuff, and Mickey liked that because I don't think any of the guitar players he was using at the time were doing it. I know I used to sit next to a lot of the usual session guys at the time, and they would get their music out and put it in front of them. And and the the there's a guy called John Cameron who was a big film and arranger. Hang on, John, John, do, do, not the guy John who, who did oh Les Misérables. Yeah. Well, we work yeah, with we work with him yeah. on our musical. He would give me my music and wink at me as he put it, and he would put it on my music stand upside down, knowing full well I couldn't read a note. <laughs> but, but I was there to do the thing with the solo, you know, and these guys next to me, and I, I won't give any names away, but they were quite well known. They would say, how do you do that? It's not written down. This is a long time ago, boys, right? Yeah. And I'd, I'd have my little Fender champ. Clem Cattini. But no, well, no, it wasn't quite. No, no, there no. were other people, good players. Uh, Barry Morgan was usually the drummer. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, really nice guy, really good guys. I mean, nothing wrong with them, but they were all, you know, set in their ways kind of thing. There's this young whippersnapper comes in from a rock band, you know, uh, hair, well, sorry about this. It's lockdown hair chap, sorry about that. And um, it was very enlightening to me because he paid me what I thought was a lot of money. And uh, I liked being around him because he was such an interesting guy. And I learned so much from Mickey Most in the studio on how to make records. He was he was amazing. But you didn't think you were selling out to you to your to your blues? No, because by then you see, I, I just jumping back to UFO by being like the blues purist on stage and saying, "I'm not running around like chickens like you three are. I'm going to be cool and stand next by Marshall like Eric does, giving it giving it you know pure pureness, thinking." hang on, I'm the one who looks like a twat here. You know, it's just like, well, why are you bothering being in the band? So then I started joining in and I got into it. And it was being on the road with them that I realised that you didn't have to be the greatest guitarist in the world to be successful. But if you were in a really good band, and I thought, well, then concentrate on your writing. And Cozy was very big on the writing thing. And we, I was, I was uh, encouraged to write with Wild Turkey, and it was like, okay, let's do that. Let's be a really good guitar player, but let's be in a really good band. But the most important thing, and you'll know this, is to write songs. And that's what I really settled down for. So I'd lost, I'd, I probably did sell out a bit of my so-called uh, early early beliefs, but uh, play, you know, playing um, blues in E isn't gonna give you a very long career all the time. Well, wasn't it was was it Eric Clapton or someone who went to that because that coming from that blues world when it was, was it was someone went to John Mayall and said because everything was a twelve bar he said I really want to write songs and John Mayall said well just find a song you like and change the words yeah, <laughs> yeah. instead of walking the dog yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Freddie King called, uh, did a thing they got him to do a thing called uh, it, it was a complete lift of. Uh, um, an Otis Redding tune, and it was called Sitting in a Boat Dock, and it was Dock of the Bay. <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable stuff. What was your inspiration as a writer then? What, 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 where, was, where was your wellspring of creativity coming from? Uh, reeling in the years. Every day on, on the American services, this record would come on at some point, and you could never really understand what it was. You know, reeling in the, bringing in the sheaves or whatever, you couldn't quite work out what it was. 
but you just heard this fantastic song. And now we'd be going on and on about it. And they hated it, which made me like it even more. And then I had to try and find it. And that's when I found the first Dilly Dan album. And I thought if I could write anything, you know, with these these kind of... I also like Crosby, Stills and Nash. Well, I like to love their writing. We can go into your, Ash, you know, your Pace, Ashton, Lord area now but i'm really interested in the, the in david a new meeting well basically you're going to step into the the deep purple world aren't you now cozy pal you know what he said to me Go on. welcome to the bottomless pit <laughs> and i went what and he said you'll find out <laughs> and it was that look he recommended me for the job you see and i think i say in the book i was more scared of going back to him to say i, I didn't get the gig than i was of not getting the gig because i was Oh, because he meant so much to you. Yeah, his, his oh, opinion. Man. He was best man at our wedding, you know. He was mm-hmm. my mate, really. And uh, he, he was such a big influence on me. You know, I mean, studio wise, we're cozy. You know, he'd say, I've been in a studio going, oh, this is great. Look at this. Oh, look at look. And he'd go, get on with it. It's just a room. I'm with you. I, I always, th- always felt like such a privilege to be in a studio. Yeah. But, let, but let's finish off with Cozy then before we move on, because, because I mean, he is a legend and he was, you know, just check him out on YouTube, anyone who hasn't seen him before. Yeah. I mean, really super handsome guy, double bass mm. drum kit and uh, leaning over. I mean, he looked incredible when he played, didn't he? And he, and he lived fast and, and died fast, didn't he? He's a Ferrari man. He was a racing yeah. driver, but he was a, he was a bloody good bloke, you know, mm. and, People misunderstood him because he was, you know, he could be tough on you. He, he was very accurate with the drum skit, drumstick if, if he he could pick you up <laughs> 35 yards on stage. And if you didn't like something, he'd tell you. But he, he'd give you a right rollicking in a rehearsal room or something or whatever. And then afterwards, it was like, okay, we got the football. And that would, that you know, just don't mess up again. He was like that, you know. Talking of which, you have a connect, connection with, with one, of, one of Guy's best friends. Didn't you play football with David Gilmore? Yes. Did you know about that guy? No, I didn't know about that. Tell us about the football I know people playing cricket. The Hammer Small Faces Pink Pie football team. <laughs> Is that the team that's on the co- the photo on the cover of a nice pair? Because I've seen, you know, there's the Pink Floyd football uh, team. But I'm no, not no, this, no, this, right. was proper, this was proper showbiz league football Sunday mornings. And Greg Ridley used to play, uh, bless him, who were my heroes. David used to come to play. Very good player. Very good footballer. Really? Yeah, Cozy, uh, Frank, Don Airy, uh, Clive, myself, Hamish Stewart, Alan. Oh Gold, wow! White band. Hamish White band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've played with yeah, Hamish. We had a we had a pretty. I'm, I'm, apologies to anybody I've forgotten, but it, we had a pretty good team. And it was you would play. We were one of the few musicians teams who would play the uh, record company guys or publishing guys, and they like to get stuck in thinking we'd be a load of nannies. But the, 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 it was not, and people did like to get their foot in, and it was it. It got quite hairy sometimes. It was good. I was funny to say because I've got a very different. The only type of sporting thing I've ever engaged in with David is uh, we, we had a we had played cricket against EMI in um, in Sydney yeah. in 1987. In fact, the England team was staying there. We nearly had both of them on our team. Right. Um, and but but what was very funny was every time David was batting, of course, he thought he was the greatest cricketer in the world because who from EMI is going to catch him? <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. He, was, he, he wasn't one of the regulars because I think he was always doing something or be but you know we'd all drive out to some marsh somewhere and play and he always showed up and uh was always one of the boys that got stuck in and I, I, look, I always admired him for, you know, why shouldn't he be he was just look, one of the rest of us really he was just wow. to be oh, the guitar player from the pink very floor. much has that he very uh, much has that let's, let's, yeah. let's talk about your time with white snake and yeah, come on writing what is we're, we've, we've, well, our time is marching on we've been keeping you a long time so yes right. we barely scratched the surface so come on you're 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 in with we spoke about you joining with the great legendary who we love by the way no matter what we say on this program <laughs> how we snigger about his voice we adore david coverdale right so um but you join up with him and you end up writing on that first album don't you one of the one of the biggest songs of all time uh we wrote the first song we wrote together was a song called come on which is was on an ep and then it, uh, then we did walking in the shadow of the blues fool for your loving and then the last album i did fuel for your oven as david used fuel to say your was there, yeah <laughs> then we, the, the band was more or less falling apart really we didn't know that at the beginning on an album called Saints and Sinners, but I'd written mm-hmm. um, Here I Go Again. 
Now, when you say you'd written it, had you come up with the, the sort of vocal idea, any of the lyrics? or I'd or done a just... demo of it at uh, wow. up the road uh, from uh, the old house I lived in, which is only, well, between me and where your mum lives. <laughs> and uh, um, I'd done a demo of it there uh, with some words, with the bridges, and, you know, from them kind of uh, into the major to make it positive. Here I go again on my own. Mm. And I played it to him at Clearwell Castle when we were down there doing Saints and Sinners. And he, he loved it. And he went, he went to run away. But I said, oh, that's great. And he'd done it before. We're walking in the shadow of the blues where I sort of went into the line and said, and it goes something like, and I'm walking in the shadow of the, and he went, oh, that's great. And he ran away and came back with the lyrics. And uh, he, he more or less redid the lyrics on Here I Go, but I did have some of the ideas in there. Mm -hmm. So that was the last thing that I recorded with White Snake, oddly enough. And uh, after that, we went in to finish it ended up with just him and I at Britannia Row, which you all know well. Mm -hmm. And um, halfway through the sessions when people had left or some people didn't show up, and I looked at him and said, uh, we might as well knock this on the head, might we? And he looked at me with big eyes and said, are you thinking it as well? And I said, I've been thinking it for the last month or so. It's terrible. you know. We this just... was management stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Oh, it was yeah. Really, yeah. And he, he had some personal stuff going on as well. With uh, He had a new baby by then, and uh, the, 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 he had some medical problems, which was quite serious at the time. And, you know, he had other things to think about and worry about. I didn't have children at the time, so I didn't understand that, you know, you know what the reverberations that that causes. And um, the next thing is he said, well, look, we have to keep writing because we're the, you know, the, the main writers of the lineup and i said yeah that's great let's let's take a break let's do what queen did in those days and take a break from one another and each other and let's get rid of this management contract so we went away thinking that's what we were going to do and the next thing is uh, i'm called into the management's office and there's all of us there except david and then we're told that uh, white snake's finished and uh, that was it really the next time i saw him was at donnington and uh he said uh it was only working out of the contract and i said okay and but it was if we'd have won a good fight, it might have been better, really. But uh, it was a bit of a whimper after all the three and a half years of, of making some great records and having a great time on the road because it was a, a wonderful band to be with. So, did you then not, you know, were you sort of off each other's Christmas card list or whatever? Not really. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, you've played with him since, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And we've, you know, I go oh, quite a lot of times and uh, we, you know, we, we did a wonderful thing at Hammersmith Odin, which was very emotional all round. And we did Sweden Rock with about 40,000 people. And that was the first time when he, he, he invited me back out to play with him. And it's, it's fantastic to get up there and to play the songs because we never, because the band had broken up before Here I Go Again got a chance to be played live, you see. So but that's, a, that's a fantastic postscript, isn't it? So you go, oh, yeah. well, that was all a bit of shit, wasn't it? And you walk yeah. away. But meanwhile, meanwhile you've, back left, you've laid this golden egg. <laughs> yeah. And people say, you know, well, you know, aren't you bitter about it? I say, well, no. And they then the, the cynical ones say, well, that's because you sold 10 million copies of it, which is nice. I'm not going to complain about that. Also, I could listen to that 87 album the same way that if I was listening to a Journey album or a yeah, Fox, yeah. it was just a band that I happened to be in the same name of. It was nothing to do with the, the band I was in. We were an R&B band, really. Yeah, but this is interesting, isn't it? Because here I go again, your version that was on that that album um, in 82? or 82, 82, yeah. yeah. Um, isn't the version that became the smash hit worldwide, an MTV sort of, you know, exceptional video Later on, he redid the record, didn't he, David? He he re-recorded yeah. it with a diff yeah. different player. But with that, I mean, which is so funny because you know what White Snake that you were in, we you know. And I always think of that image of um, from Live in the Heart of the City. Yeah. Of that, and it, and you're and it's a very kind of rootsy English. It's that English band look yeah. that we know and we love. Whereas you know, whereas the, the MTV White Snake is a cartoon, basically, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, a lot of people in America, and I mean a lot of people, musicians especially, think I'm the songwriter of Whitesnake. They don't know that I, I was ever in the band. The hardcore people, they... You're the Pete Sinfield. <laughs> the Pete Sinfield. Brian Warren. That doesn't matter, you know. I mean, you know, to this day, you know, the song is... Well, it's it's huge. It's it's. Uh, I've I think, played it with David, with Jimmy Page. We used to do it with Coverdale Page. You know, we we played you've it. Played yeah. it live more times than me. <laughs> I played it at the Budokan, mate. Wow, thank you. For, yeah, I heard you. Jimmy told me he had played it. He did actually yeah. say, "You know, I played your tune." And I said, "Yeah, I do." <laughs> 
so Bernie, when we bumped into you, uh, was was a couple of years ago now at, down at Abbey Road. We were we were working on the Nick Mason record, and you were in there with with Joe Bonamassa. So you you've been working with Joe, right? Yeah, Joe and I have known each other about ten years, but a bit more now, and we're we're pretty close. And uh, he called me up um, end of two thousand nineteen. And he said, I want to come over. I'm coming over. Well, I, I involved him in a session, uh, turned out to be a legendary session, though, with Ginger Baker in Studio Two. And we did Cream Revisited, sort of acoustically, which is a bit of a... Bit of a <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, a stretch. A stretch. Really. <laughs> it's a, bit of a stretch, but it works. It does work. It does work, believe me. And I got him involved, and he, he really enjoyed the vibe at, in, at Abbey Road. And he, in his mind, then that started by saying, I want to do a whole record in, in London. And he came over and he said, I want to do the whole thing. And I want I want you to come and write with me. So I thought I'd do a couple of songs. We ended up doing about eight. So I, we'll, yeah. we'll see it was the result. So I, I saw you playing here in Brighton with Joe at the uh, at the conference centre. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've and it was a- brilliant. It was, it, there was a lot of love for you. It was fantastic when you came out. And, and Joe was really proud to have you there. It was really nice. Yeah, he's, it was quite he's, a moment. He's a great player. He really is. And uh, he's a really good guy. You know, he, he puts those shades on and slicks his barnet back and puts the suit on and he becomes Joe Bonamassa, the, the rock god, the, the guitar god. The, you know, you, you've met him and uh, he's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's a bit of like, I think what he say, my name, I'm Joe, Joe CD. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> got lots of guitars, but I have no children. <laughs> so what's, ne- what's next, Bernie? I've got these um, Chess and King coming out uh, later in the year yes um, the book as you proudly uh, showed me earlier thank you very much is out in paperback in a uh, couple of weeks and, and you've done the audio book as well i did the audio book which has been really good i'm working on the, the follow-up to this one and um that should be done probably end, end of the year which is going to be quite fun as well light-hearted uh, you know reminiscences and um that's that's, that's coming up right. i'm enjoying it you know it's good well thank you bernie for joining us on rock on tours it's, uh, thank you for having me, boys. It's, I mean, to join your illustrious list is uh, a very, very proud moment for me. And uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, that was lovely. Wasn't yeah, it? it was. Some, you know, it was an interesting period of music. I, I really didn't follow that as a kid. You know, my record collection doesn't have a lot of that sort of blues man stuff in it, you know. But uh, it was definitely a big scene. And it's a scene that ended up with the sort of monsters of rock metal bands like Iron Maiden, uh, etc. Judas Priest. Am I wrong? Uh, yeah, no, not at all. No, there, yeah, there was our whole, after punk Every, you know, the certain generation went a certain way, and then there was this whole parallel world that carried on, which yes, kind of culminated in Nwobum, I believe, the most unwieldy of all the genres. You know, remember the new wave of British heavy oh, metal? Oh yes, of course, of course. But yeah, Nwobum, I never knew how you were supposed but to. But they say. had a lot of hair and made a lot of money. A lot of span. Anyway, listen, thank you for listening. It's been a, a pleasure to do this every week. So uh, keep us going by uh, following us and subscribing and downloading and whatever you can do, and we will see you very soon won't we guy we will indeed and it's good night from me and it's good night from all of us mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33% with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market 